mansion if you please Quiet nights offer classic films But mornings offer eggs and cheese Are you ready for some omelets? The Georgia Football Classic Cinema and Omelets Podcast with your host, Steve Shafini. Steve, thanks, elderly Jewish me. God, what an intro. It's the Internet's number one podcast for UGA football classic cinema analysis and omelet recipes I like to call Georgia Football Classic Cinema and Omelets. What a huge game last week. So much uprising in the SEC and in the omelet and classic cinema community. What a game. Georgia steals a win. And I mean steals a win. The Hamburglar mask, the gun, the empty sack with the dollar sign. We had no business winning that game at Missouri. Georgia comes away with a 28-27 win in Columbia. It's a big deal, and I'll tell you why. And boy, if you think omelets will give you a heart attack, how about that game? Eh? Eh? It's also the game that possibly... Just possibly makes Jacob Eason a UGA legend in just his second start. One of the clutch throws in Georgia history, and a lot of people don't understand why. We're going to get to that. And I know what you're thinking. Eason's staring down that fourth and ten, staring down Charles Harris with nearly a patchwork, shitty-ass offensive line to protect him. It's just like Mike Hammer from the 1955 film noir Kiss Me Deadly. Think about it. That's what it's like when you're a five-star freshman quarterback on the SEC in the road. One minute, you're driving along in your convertible, minding your own business. The next minute, bam! You hit a naked Cloris Leachman. For Jacob Eason, he's a young man thrown into a world of corruption, big money, and two-fisted dames. And that's just SEC recruiting. <laughs> hey! Oh, his rights itself. Uh, and so we're going to look at the 1955 film noir, Kiss Me Deadly, not, not to be confused with the Lita Ford song, Kiss Me Deadly, which we are going to do, but on a future podcast. And we're going to be making a mushroom and chives omelet. Last week, I fucked around with the egg whites and the skim because I was too lazy to go shopping. Big mistake. I thought about ground beef omelets for those beefy, Big Ten-style Missouri women, but I didn't have any ground beef that was thawed. And I got to be honest, I feel responsible. Uh, you know, I thought last week I'd let you guys down with the omelet. It was dry. It was undercooked. Uh, the flip I didn't quite execute properly. It was a really oblong mess of an omelet. I just didn't make a good flip when it counted. Nothing I could do now to get in the film room and get ready for this week's omelet. Kind of sound like Barry Odom at the uh, post-game presser. God, talk the guy off the ledge. All right, um, so I'm going to crack a side of friend. He said, do you really make omelets while you're doing the podcast? Asshole, yeah. So now i got to drag my mic in the kitchen. I'm going to pause it for a second. Hang on. All right, did you hear that? Did you hear the crack? They're eggs, but three of them stirring it. Yes, we really do make omelets here. And with that crack, we are underway. Now, to the non-Georgia fan, you wouldn't understand why it's a huge win. And you can point out what we did wrong, and it was obvious. Bad offensive line play, bad defensive line play, sloppy game, turnovers, 
it's a great recipe to, speaking of recipes, uh, how you lose an SEC road game. We did a lot of things terribly wrong that will cost us later. But why we should just enjoy the moment as Georgia fans, this is a huge win. Yes, over a Missouri team that won exactly a single conference game last year. It was a, one of those games where it was one play away. It could have, it, the game came down to a single play. How many times did Georgia end up on the wrong side of games that were decided by one play? 2013 at Clemson, UGA was a top 10 or maybe even top 5 road favorite in Death Valley, and we allowed four TDs uh, through the air against Taj Boyd in a three-point loss. The next year, and, and this game still drives me crazy to this day, uh, three-point loss at South Carolina. To this day, I have a friend who hates Mike Bobo, offense coordinator at Georgia who broke every school record for passing, offense, scoring. Because of the sequence, we had first and goal from the forward-yard line with a healthy Todd Gurley who was averaging nine yards a carry against South Carolina, almost the first town every time he touched the ball. Boom. Back shoulder fade pass. Aaron Murray, incomplete, gets called for intentional grounding. To which I say, that was among the most questionable play calling I've seen in the Bobo era. Uh, But if Marshall Morgan makes that kick, and it's about an extra point, if I recall, about 23 yards, we would play for overtime, and we wouldn't be talking about that play calling three years later, two years later, two years later. And you'd think one year of Brian Schottenheimer would make him a Mike Bobo fan. Not true. And lest I forget the most important, the 2012 SEC championship game. Chris Conley can't get out of bounds in time. Uh, Georgia surely would have gone on to whip Notre Dame and end that championship drought at 34 years instead of 36. Excuse me, my math is a little bad. 32 years, 2012-19. 32 years instead of 36 years and counting. But isn't that how it always is for our program? You know, like the program logo should be Chris Conley trying to get out of bounds as this clock expires. You know, we're unclutch as a program, no matter who the players are. We're... Patrick Ewing back-rimming a layup against the Pacers in the 1994 Eastern Conference Finals. So, it's great to be on the right side of a game decided by a single play. Now, I don't want to keep going back to this, but kind of felt like a loss with the old regime, especially after William Hems' uh, really sad field goal attempt that kind of just died in mid-trajectory. It was just sad. Georgia, major issues with the kicking game. Major. We're going to get into that. I I know that we didn't really play well, but that's the whole point. So if you want to point out that we had four turnovers and no points off those turnovers, yeah, but we won the game. You want to point out how bad the pass defense was and how easily Missouri marched downfield after the Easton touchdown if he didn't force the fumble, but he did. If you want to say... Georgia, once again, could not establish the run game and had very sketchy play on the offensive line. We can't win if Michelle and Chubb combined for 100 yards instead of running for 100 yards apiece. You can say that, but we won the game. Easton can't throw the ball 55 times. Yeah, but we won the game. So it's a win on the SEC in the road. Yeah, I know. It's Missouri. They're they're probably rebuilding. I can euphemistically say that. But their offense was really good. It's not a Gary Pinkle team. I was at the 9-6 game. I paid $200 to go to that 9-6 game. Do you know how much money that is per point scored? I had to lay off the math department. I don't know, but it's a lot. And this was a hell of an entertaining game. And, you know, Missouri might 
be something soon. Nonetheless, Georgia as a program, it's always these games where we're one play away that just break your heart. We're talking about the blowout losses and big spots. And Georgia just didn't do the little things that separate very good programs from championship programs. That being said, it's a huge win for us. You know, if you have a sloppy loss once, you have a bunch of turnovers once, dumb penalty, okay, it's an occurrence, it's luck, it's officiating, whatever, but you keep doing it, and it's a trend. And hopefully, this is the end of that trend. And of all the questions we have, one question is settled. We no longer have a quarterback controversy. And I don't think we ever did. I think it was kind of a smokescreen just trying to motivate or uh, Coach Smart playing things close to the vest. But if you're sick of the Jacob Eason hype, what they say in the Russian army, tough shitsky. They say that. Because it's just beginning. Now, obviously, Coach Smart, when he said, quote, let's be honest, when you turn a battleship, you turn it around slow. And it goes like this. It slowly turns. We have a lot of young people out there. Obviously, he was talking about the 1925 silent movie Battleship Potemkin, directed by Sergei Eisenstein from the Soviet Union. Because you know Coach Smart's a dedicated listener to the podcast, and he's a connoisseur of silent cinema. And he can parallel park a battleship, apparently. So I had this whole shtick about Battleship Potemkin, that's right, the 1925 silent Russian movie, and how the Odessa Steps Massacre montage sequence was like last year's Alabama game. And if you've seen The Untouchables, you know it pretty much rips off that whole, or homages that whole sequence. You should really check it out online. But with the win, I didn't think uh, a silent movie about the Russian Revolution was really appropriate. I even went so far as to compare uh, Coach Rick to Tsar Nicholas II. So, Dog Nation Daily... You don't educate your listeners like we do here. Plus, I don't think Coach Smart would want to be called a Bolshevik. It looks like a kind of a crusty guy. I don't, wouldn't want to say that. He was out to get men who tortured women and killed with the ferocity of wild beasts. This was their jungle. Only a woman could help him solve the murderous riddle of Kiss Me Deadly. She's dead. But I'm not dead. Hey, remember me? This woman's lips, cold as steel, lethal as a gun, gave him the terrifying clue he sought. On this woman's lips, warm with longing, lay the shocking secret of Kiss Me Deadly. God, why don't they make trailers like that anymore? Can you imagine if, like, CBS promoted the SEC with that voiceover guy? That'd be pretty awesome. Pretty sexy, a little bit sexier than Battleship Potemkin. From 1955, Kiss Me Deadly with Ralph Meeker, directed by Robert Aldrich, who did The Dirty Dozen and The Longest Yard. And it's kind of like this particularly brutal and sometimes misogynistic film noir. Interesting that the trailer said you know, he's going to hunt down men who tortured women, but he does not, doesn't exactly treat women all that well in this movie. You know, it's almost like a caricature of... Um, other film noir heroes. I mean, I prefer like, you know, Sam Spade or, you know, like Bogart or Fred McMurray as like Walter Neff and Double Indemnity. I mean, these guys could outsmart you, outwit you. They would only fight if they had to. So Ralph Meeker's Mike Hammer and Kiss Me Deadly, he's basically an equivalent to Ben Affleck's Batman. You know, he gets outwitted by, he can't outwit Lex Luthor, who's like, you know, the kid from the social network. So he has to shoot the place up. 
And so if I were going to start with film noir, I would go with like Maltese Falcon or Double Indemnity, The Big Sleep, The Third Man, Touch of Evil, before I would get to Kiss Me Deadly. But why do I like it so much? You know, it's just such a fucking cool-looking movie. If you like the cool cinematography of film noir in black and white, this is your movie, particularly the opening sequence. I would say only Touch of Evil has a cooler opening shot than this one, opening sequence. You have one of the hallmark images of film noir, dark, desolate highway, and like, spoiler alert, Clarice Leachman runs out, and she's like, slow down, you know, pick me up, and she's all fucked up. And that's a young, attractive Clarice Leachman. You're not thinking of Frau Blucher right now. Do I have a horse sound effect? Horse? I do not. Frau Blucher. But anyway, Clarice Leachman was kind of fetching here. She was still pretty young. Um, and, you know, like the dick that he is, he says... You almost wrecked my car. And he's just a thuggish meathead. But it's, it's so cool looking, this scroll. It's like a Star Wars scroll comes down, and it's huge fucking titles. And it goes in the opposite direction of the Star Wars scroll, so it's like from the foreground, the background to the foreground, which makes it look really weird. So it's like you're reading it backwards. Hard to explain, but check it out on YouTube. You'll know what I'm talking about. And all the while, a sobbing Cloris Leachman, and they play some smooth jazz Nat King Cole, which was new at the time, over it, resulting in probably the coolest opening sequence you could ever imagine in a film. Uh, and then they have, you know, this poor Christina Bailey, a.k.a. Cloris Leachman, she gets hanged and tortured immediately. So don't get attached to her as a character. She's got about five minutes of screen time. And it's just this kind of menacing shot of her feet being suspended in midair through a noose, presumably, that you can't see. Uh, so filmmakers of today, they kind of forget filmmaking 101. What you can't see is always scarier and more terrifying than what you can. And then it has dissolved to the evil enemy's feet. So it's a really scary, brutal, cool sequence. And the rest of the movie is still really good. Like I said, everything is like a caricature of uh, what you think film noir people should be. You know, like Ralph Meeker, he has a... Uh, the hat and the suit and, you know, in the disposition and there's the dames with the gams that are much more overt in their sexuality than they are in earlier film noirs. But, um, so it's kind of like plays a little bit ridiculous sometimes with the dialogue. It's like straight out of the naked gun, two and a half. How hot and wet do you like it? Very hot and very wet. But, you know, that goes with any old movie because you had to have sexual innuendo because of the production code. But they have no problem with violence on women in this movie. Uh, and I also think what separates it is one of the most interesting MacGuffins in any movie. Now, for those of you who don't know what the MacGuffin is, it's a term coined by Alfred Hitchcock, which is just something made up to make the plot go. And on that note, um, I cooked the mushrooms in advance. I just did the flip on this omelet, and the flip turned out pretty good. I had to put the microphone down, in all honesty. But it's simmering now. The chives smell really good, give it a lot of flavor. The mushrooms I cooked the night before, they're looking good too. I think this is going to be a really good omelet. <laughs> According to Hitchcock, whatever the MacGuffin is is completely inconsequential. It could be secret microfilm, like in North by Northwest, or it could be you know, searching for the perfect omelet recipe. And so a guy uh, emailed me, and he said, why don't you do a McMuffin McGuffin, or a McGuffin McMuffin? Say that fast. And I said, listen, buddy, 
This podcast is Georgia football, classic cinema, and omelets. When you got an Alabama football, Lita Ford songs, and McMuffin podcast, you can submit it there, okay? We focused. We're focused. Anyway, point being, um, Kiss Me Deadly has one of the most interesting MacGuffins. Like I said, it's plutonium. It's a case full of plutonium. You don't know what it is. There's an aura of mystery to it. And if you like Pulp Fiction and you know, nothing's truly original in any Tarantino movie, not that I don't love them, you know, it has this glowing suitcase. And the glowing, first glowing suitcase I've seen is in this movie. And the ship blows sky high at the end, which is kind of funny because if you thought today's trailers had spoilers, holy shit, I mean, the last shot of the movie is in the trailer that I just saw. So, spoiler alert, the plutonium blows the fuck up. There is an alternate ending on the Criterion DVD where the whole beach blows up and in the one that's on the release film, you see uh, Ralph Meeker and Maxine Cooper getting away. So they stave off nuclear annihilation for another couple of days. It's a happy ending. But what um, she said about the MacGuffin, specifically in the film, you're only avenging your friend's death to get closer to the great what's-it, the great unknown, the MacGuffin. The pursuit is so intense... We forget what the goal is. Georgia fans, do we have a MacGuffin? Do we have a great what's-it? Is there something we've been pursuing since, I don't know, 1980 or so? So, tempering some of that good feeling from that win, which we should have, still might be a rebuilding year. That drought, that MacGuffin, the great what's-it, might be a little out of reach this year because I think this is a terrible matchup for us in Oxford next week. Um, I did think when Ole Miss got up 24-3 to against Alabama, and I thought that was our one chance because momentum, it's like Ole Miss's whole recent history of their program is like the last two back-to-back wins against Alabama. Hang their hat on that. So to do that three times in a row, for this Alabama game, there had to be some sort of huge emotional lay over the next week, and I was hoping with an 11 a.m. kickoff local time we could catch him off guard. Instead, uh, I'm anticipating a very focused, very pissed off, talented Ole Miss team that has the dubious distinction of being the only team that's given up 21-point leads in back-to-back weeks. Yikes. And they're a good team still. They have just have a buzzsaw of a schedule. Florida State, Alabama, and Georgia, three of the first four weeks. I just can't see, no matter what, this team going oh, and th- losing two in a row at home or going 0-2 at conference and 1-3 on the year. I-, I just don't see it. And matchup-wise, they just scored 43 points against Alabama. We could not keep up with the no-huddle, the tempo offense of Missouri. It's like every time you looked up, Missouri was throwing downfield for another first down. So what's it going to be like with arguably better quarterback and Chad Kelly? Better wide receivers, and the offensive line matchup's not going to get any easier because Marquise Haynes, I believe is his name, uh, I don't see anyone on the Georgia line that could block him. Um, the Georgia pass defense was exposed. We had no pressure on Drew Locke. He was able to just pick us apart, 376 yards through the air. Uh, really haven't gotten any sacks or any pressure on any QBs that we played this season. We have to get some pressure on Chad Kelly, or he's just going to pick us apart. Three games in, still unable to establish a running game with the offensive line. You know, you hear Coach Smart say it, we're stuck with these guys. We don't really have a lot of people ready. I think 
Ben Cleveland's going to redshirt. We're talking about the recruiting loss of EJ Price to USC. Could he have played this year? I don't know. Uh, the one thing I do know is these are the guys, and I don't think we're quite ready to run Jim Chaney and Kirby Smart's system, this big offensive line, win the battle of the trenches like they had at Alabama. I don't think we have that kind of personnel yet. So we need to have some new wrinkles. We need to have some new screen game, some way to get Chubb the ball other than just running in between the tackles because that's obviously not working. And to their credit, where I think the Rick Schottenheimer regime would have kept trying to run Chubb through the tackles, they adjusted. There's no way their game plan was to have Easton throw 55 yards. But the run game wasn't happening. We're not going to get that lucky to do it two games in a row, especially not against Ole Miss. Scariest situation of all. Time running out in the fourth quarter. Tie game. Go to the kicker. Bring on William Hamm. Did he have the Hershey squirties or what? I mean, he was shitting his pants on the road. He was shitting his pants at the Georgia Dome. Guy's like fucking axe lax. He just doesn't have it. I mean, he doesn't have the nuts. You know, we're talking about Easton's poise and how calm he is under pressure for a freshman. If he makes those two kicks at 38 and 23 yards, we're really makeable for SEC kickers. And the game's tied. We could win with a field goal. So if it comes down to a game of kickers, we're screwed. Now, I don't know if they're going to make a change. I think Kirby's of the school of kickers don't get scholarship kickers or walk-ons. Maybe we should amend that policy. I'm just saying. There's a lot of work to do in practice this week. And on a side note, I'm so glad to get out of Missouri with the win. I really hate that game for a lot of reasons. Um, geography. It's 735 miles away. It's the same distance as next year's game against Notre Dame and South Bend. Penn State's a closer geographical rival. Oh, by the way, keep it classy, Penn State, with those Sadusky is innocent and Joe Paterno was railroaded shirts. Classy guys, really. Really should be honoring Joe Paterno right after the fact. It's a little too soon. He did allow a child rapist to rape more children. But that's another podcast. Suddenly, the Georgia fan who drunkenly ran through a window doesn't seem as bad. If you haven't seen it yet, you have to Google, watch this guy. After Easton's touchdown, this guy went so crazy, he started running around his apartment, and then purposely, wasn't an accident, went through a window. Bleacher Report actually reposted this link. It's on Twitter. If you haven't seen it yet, you have to see it, because it's going to go down as one of the hallmark redneck moments in the history of SEC fandom. You know, we just gave other schools ammunition to say Georgia fans are so stupid and redneck, blah, blah, blah. Nonetheless, it was pretty funny. Getting back to uh, Missouri, you know, we always play them early in the season. We played them when it was their first conference game ever. And so they're always a little bit more jacked about this game than we are. They don't have a natural rival. So it doesn't have, it's, I would compare that to the Tech game, not so much for the tradition and rivalry or whatever. But as far as the pressure is always on us, you know, we have to win. Uh, it's not our biggest game of the year. Tech's not our biggest game of the year. It's not a conference game. It's not a division game. Missouri is a division game, but the pressure is always on us because we're always supposed to win. And honestly, I'm kind of tired of hearing how great their fans are. 71,000-seat stadium. It wasn't sold out. They were loud, sure. They were good by standards of other schools, but 71,000 sold-out fans, screaming people, that's just the beginning of SEC crowds. So... Why they always say Missouri's crowds are so great? They're pretty good. The student section's pretty good. 
again, you saw a lot of empty seats there. Uh, and I don't want to take another pot shot at their beefy, thick, hippish, Big Ten-style women. Not in the category of uh, Georgia or Ole Miss. Speaking of which, that's another wrinkle in that game, another thing for us dog fans to think about. With Luke Del Rio out, no one wants to win the SEC East. Depending on how that Florida-Tennessee game turns out, it's like there's more pressure on us. People think we can win the East now. Because of you know, lucky play in that game. A huge, also, the huge pass interference call that set up Easton's touchdown. We really won that by the skin of our teeth. So have to make lots of adjustments, lots of have a great week of practice, and not only get ready for Ole Miss at 11 a.m. local time, noon for us here on the East Coast, and we have Tennessee in the biggest game of the year. And it's going to be big for them, too, because if we have Ole Miss, that could be a hangover for us. We might have a nasty loss. Who knows? But Tennessee-Florida, that game has been circled. You know, Tennessee's had the, what, 20 games in a row losing to Florida? They've been, they're going to be so geeked for that game. It's a 3.30 kickoff in between the hedges in two weeks. And uh, let me just correct myself real quick. Uh, Florida has won 11 straight over Tennessee in 19 of the last 23. Um, so Florida will be 8.5-point underdogs against a team they've beaten 11 times in a row. The whole season, the whole Butch Jones era, hinging on this game in Knoxville. Florida going in there with nothing to lose. Backup quarterback, big underdogs, it's not supposed to be their year. Pressure's on Tennessee. Uh, I don't really have a rooting interest other than I root for like a lot of like violent brawls between fans in that game. Point being, if there's any kind of Alabama hangover in the Ole Miss game, there could possibly be a Tennessee-Florida hangover when we play that game in two weeks. So I would say every Georgia fan is going to be watching that game after our game. I love it when all the pressure is on Tennessee. I love it when they're the prohibitive favorite in anything. Georgia seems to believe their own hype, and the higher ranked we are and the more journalists and the more people and more bloggers talking about us, the worse we play. We're very lucky to get that win in Missouri. And I hear a lot of people saying now, well, Georgia's my sleeper in these. Oh, I had Georgia all along with Luke Del Rio out. Got a lot of football to be played here. You got a lot of football to be played. And next week, I'm not saying we can't win. I would never say that. But the way the matchup looks so far, uh, it could get ugly. Just saying. But I'll take a blowout loss even at Ole Miss for a win against Tennessee in two weeks. Looking for the great what's it, the national championship. How long are we going to wait? As Frank Drebin said about SEC football, It's like eating Drano. Sure, it'll clean you out, but it leaves you hollow inside. This omelet is very tasty. I had to let it sit for a while. Uh, Dried out a bit while I was talking, but uh, I recommend mushroom chives. The whole recipe is on uh, NewYorkTimesMagazine.com. That's where I got it. And honestly, I was being cheap last week and had a couple leftover egg whites, threw it together. This is a much better omelet since I went shopping. Good consistency. And I don't think it's that bad for you. It's like the first omelet that's actually good that I didn't bombard with like seven different types of cheeses. Not that much butter. It's pretty moist. It's your favorite word, moist. Pretty moist, pretty good. So it's uh, chives and mushroom. There's a recipe on NewYorkTimesMagazine.com. It says vegetarian safe, but I recommend that vegans and vegetarians don't listen to this podcast. I, I don't want their patronage. Everyone else, thanks for clicking. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to talk Ole Miss 
We're going to talk about an omelet that I haven't picked yet, and probably going to do something Faulkner-related in honor of Oxford, Mississippi's most famous literary son. Really, how many other writers they have come from Oxford? Um, until then, thanks for clicking. We'll talk to you soon. Later. Yeah.